0: And so all of the brands that we've created, whether it's Waffles or Happy Foodie, or our partnership with Barstool Sports and One Bite, that ultimately tie back to how do we create access to something special.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Inside the Inspired. I'm your host, Jonathan Cohen, and that was Sam Rockwell, CEO of Happy Foodie. On last week's episode with Dr. Ravina, we talked about the importance of nutrition as it pertains to longevity and health span. So what better way to follow that up than with the prime option for your nutrition? Happy Foodie is a health-forward, health-conscious, frozen foods brand that combines great taste, high quality, at an affordable cost. Personally, I'm a fan of the cauliflower bites. Literally had to go to three different stores before finally getting my hands on some. I met Sam over 10 years ago at Century Air when I was studying for my pilot's license. At the time, Sam was already a pilot working on his instrument rating, a certification that permits a pilot to fly using the instruments on an airplane panel, while I was earning my visual flight rules rating, a certification that permits pilots to fly single engine Cessnas solo. You can listen to the episode featuring Captain Nicholas DeMarzo if you're interested in learning how to fly. Now, Getting back to Sam, even then as a college student, Sam started his own venture, Waffle Waffle a Belgian-style waffle company that is still part of his company today. Sam and I talked about building his business, supply chain management, philanthropy, identifying opportunity and developing synergy all while maintaining a strict training regimen. We also talked about the Happy Foodie partnership with Barstool Sports and the development of the One Bite Pizza and how essential timing was to that relationship. The main themes in this episode are all about drive, focus, and partnership. Knowing who you are and what you bring to the table, pun intended in this case, are critical factors towards growth. Loved catching up with Sam and super ready for you all to listen to this one. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already so you can stay up to date with all the most recent episodes coming your way. Let's get into it. Please join me in welcoming my friend, Sam Rockwell to the show. Mr. Sam Rockwell, the CEO of Happy Foodie. Welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Thanks for having me,
0: man. It's good to be here.
1: It's really my pleasure. Honestly, Sam and I go way, way back. You all remember the episode with Captain Nicholas DeMarzo. This is another individual I got to meet while I was obtaining my pilot's license, this is a real live pilot we have before us who does it for leisure. Who I'll let him speak to why he does it. But from my perception, this is someone who was a high achiever from a very early age. We met back in 2010, I want to say, is when Sounds I was getting right. yeah. my license. We haven't got the chance to catch up in a minute. A couple phone calls, a couple of text messages and DMs. We made it here. And we're here, man. And I've been looking forward to this one for a minute. Oh,
0: it's an honor and a privilege. And I think, you know, old friends and old pilot friends, you, know, you pick it up right where you left off, whether it's a decade or more. And we got the <laughs> common thread of the Captain Nicholas DeMarzo is the guy that taught us both how to get up in the air. So,
1: man, I want to start with who you are. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into what Happy Foodie is and everything that you've been up to over the last few years? I really want the audience to get a feel for what your business background is and the type of dude that we're dealing with over here?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a tough question for me to answer. <laughs> if I have to talk about a little bit what, what fuels me, and I think we probably have this in common, it's an insatiable appetite for more, whatever it is. And I think that that's always kind of been my MO and my mentality in whatever it is that we were doing. Before the podcast, we were catching up a little bit and we were talking about that. It's that whatever's in front of you, you want to go get it. You want to get more. And so for me, I grew up playing soccer. It was something that I cared a lot about. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be on the field at all times. And then when I got into college, I continued to play sports and be an athlete. But on top, outside of that, I realized that it was, you know, I was competing against other people. <laughs> and so I, I think to, if you're summarizing who I am, it's a, it's a competitor in the healthiest possible way right? to always achieve more and whatever is in front of me and whatever I have my eyes set on, I, I do want to try to excel at it, immerse myself in it and learn it and be the best at it. So that's a little bit about the psyche, I think, inside. And ultimately, it's a, it's a drive for more and a hot pursuit away from complacency. Some of the things that I really enjoy to do Outside of working, which I don't consider my work a job at all, are to be involved in athletics still the best I can, uh, to fly airplanes still. That's probably my number one passion so cool. outside of working. Um, and I would say, which kind of ties in with athletics, is to, to stay physically active, um, almost to a fault, probably. And you could probably <laughs> relate to that, where <laughs> we just don't, we don't rest. But to me, that that is a form of mental relaxation that you can't get by lying down on a couch or turning on a TV. It's just something that uh, you, I feel like you have to experience it in order to really understand it. So who do I, who am I? I think that kind of summarizes it. Things that I enjoy to do, which happen to be around what I work on, is eat. I love going uh, out yeah. going out and having good meals, right? I work really hard so that I can enjoy a good meal with good people. I don't really care about going out and all that stuff, but to eat something that tastes really good and have a great enriching conversation, get to know other people. Those are the things that I like value in life. In addition to my, my family, right? It's always best when you can do those things with your family, go flying with your family, eat dinner with your family. That's me in a nutshell outside of work, which the reality is, is that, My career and my personal life have merged into one, and I'm not ashamed of it at all. My business is me, and I am my business, although the business is bigger than me, which we'll probably (laughs) get into. I eat, sleep, and breathe it, and it's something that I am motivated by, and there are no work hours, too.
1: Sam, I remember when I saw you at Century Air. You were ahead of me in terms of where you were at in your pilot's career. You were getting your instrument. Correct. Right? Yep. You got a great and it memory. Just like, and I was just getting my feet under me, or I guess the wheels under me, the wings <laughs> under me, whatever metaphor we yeah. want to use. And We'll say getting off the ground. Getting off the ground. Thank you. And to see someone who was established already in terms of college, I was just coming out of the military in Israel and I go right into working for the Nets and then I go right into getting my pilot's license all before college. And I saw this young collegiate athlete, high achiever who also was running his own business. Waffle waffle, if I remember correctly. You got it, you got it. (laughs) And I was like, this guy's up to a lot of stuff. Man, that's so cool. I really want to be up to a lot of stuff when I can finally figure out what that means to me. That's where my head was at at the time. Obviously now when I assess it, it's way different. But at a critical point in my life, you were a really solid role model in a way that maybe you didn't realize to your credit. And before we get into all that, this conversation I'm sure is going to take on a life of its own. What is waffle waffle? Because I know it's still part of the character and essence of what you do today with happy foodie. And how did that flow in to what happy foodie is today?
0: So I started waffle waffle when I was in college and I saw a guy selling Belgian waffles on the base of a ski map. And as I opened up this podcast, who am I and what do I enjoy doing? One of those things is eating. I have a sweet tooth. And when you see 30 people, 40 people lined up on a base of a ski mountain where the temperature is 20 degrees, so there's more people on lines than there are degrees temperature. As a consumer, you're like, what's happening here? Waiting online and sub-freezing temperatures, little did I know that it would change my life, but it, but it did. It was 2009, 2010, close to around when we met. And you're in the height of a recession. And I was an undergraduate business student, which that teaches you how to read, that doesn't teach you how to understand. But in order to understand, you have to learn how to read first. And I was thinking to myself, man, I don't wanna try and impress a recruiter or impress a huge Fortune 500 company for an opportunity to get my foot in the door. Well, I'd bet on myself every day if I'm going to bet on myself, I'd rather build a floor, not a ceiling. And so not knowing what my passion was, I didn't, right. I liked eating things. I liked the taste of these waffles. They were great and they still are I said to myself, this is the time. And you can probably relate to this too. I have a very supportive family. Jumping into business is not something that you can just do unless you're fully and emotionally ready for it. Because if you put half of it in, you get none of it out. And that's what I learned, right? So if I had to go out and get a job, which again, I'm very, very fortunate that I had the emotional and honestly financial support of my family. And it wasn't the financial support in the sense of necessarily writing checks for the business. It was the financial support in that I knew I'd have a roof over my head and food on the table every day. So knowing that I had those basic fundamental needs fulfilled, fortunately, I could put everything in my, in my heart into what I was doing. Uh, withstand the ebbs and flows, that, that, was our, that was my investment. My investment was sweat. As people come to you and sometimes say, well, how do you start a business? Well, it's, you got to make an investment. If it's either money to get yourself off the ground by paying for marketing and production and all that stuff, or it's sweat. It's your time. It's your energy. It's lessons of running into walls and figuring out that that wasn't the right way to go. So Waffle Waffle was a Belgian or is a Belgian style waffle with an American twist. As that evolved and the business grew, it turned into way more than just a waffle business. And what we realized is that if you try to be everything to everyone, you ultimately are nothing to no one. And so... You have to build out brands that represent something, that stand for something, that consumers can identify with, but ultimately that give you the ability to grow outside of a particular category while still staying true to what your purpose is and your meaning. And so when it came to waffles, our abilities, our capabilities, our opportunities expanded way beyond the waffle iron as we immersed ourselves in the business world. And ultimately, we had to embrace this idea that we are not a waffle business. We're not just a meals business. We are a business about building out uh, food products for consumers that are unique, special, but most importantly, that provide accessibility to something that most consumers don't normally have. So Happy Foodie is about access to great food that's better for you. So how do you have indulgent type of foods without compromising your lifestyle diet, whether it's gluten-free or plant-based or keto, so on and so forth, right? Eating should be an occasion you look forward to, not an obligation. Again, going back to kind of who I am and who the business are, right? It's like, I'm eating breakfast, talking about what we're going to have for dinner. If I'm on the keto diet, if I'm plant-based, if I'm gluten-free, if I'm some sort of lifestyle diet. Well, it shouldn't be, oh, I've got to eat at 7 p.m. because I need to get a certain amount of calories, protein, et cetera, and, and it doesn't taste good, but it's just part of my day. It should be something we look forward to. Separately is that having great food shouldn't be limited to your geographic location. Right? We're very fortunate living in New York metro area is that there's great restaurants and plenty of access to fresh foods. But there are places within this country and obviously the world where that's something that we ultimately take for granted. Same thing with the idea that can we afford going to get great food? And so access also has to do with the ability to spend to achieve. And then last but certainly not least is like as an organization, we care very, very much about accessibility to food in general, and that's food insecurity. So it starts from the bottom all the way to the top. There's nobody that we push away as not wanting to create accessibility to great food. And so all of the brands that we've created, whether it's Waffles or Happy Foodie or our partnership with Barstool Sports and One Bite that ultimately tie back to how do we create access to something special? So a little bit of a nutshell there, but that's really the evolution of the business and what our brand means. And there's about a 10-year window in between that where there were lots of, again, bumps and bruises and pivots, but that's what we, what we ultimately embraced and what has driven our brand growth, our product development, and our distribution.
1: How do you find that the evolution of your product and brand has impacted not only you, but... The consumer, because you went into a lot of different aspects of what initially started out as this idea you had in college, and you realized it was much bigger than you initially thought. So, with all that growth comes responsibility, right? And sure. it sounds like you really embrace that responsibility. And we'll touch on philanthropy and the like. I don't want to jump too far ahead because I know you guys are up to so much over there. So, Going back to that initial question, how do you find that the evolution of your brand has impacted your consumer?
0: It's interesting. And, and you go back to me again and the idea of having an insatiable appetite for more. It's really hard to look back and say, wow, we've, we made it. or We did a good job or anything like that because I'm looking to head to where I want to go, which is more and having a greater impact on the consumer. So it takes some of these conversations sometimes to stop, take a step to the side, look back and say, oh, we have ultimately made some impact on some people. But when I look to the other side, I say, well, we haven't made enough of an impact on enough people. What I very much care about, and I think what's driven this journey With the consumers, with our customers, our customers are retailers, the consumers are the the people that go into the stores and actually buy our products, is I think that there's this, I I hope that we're seen as a good partner, a good partner to the community, a good partner to our customers. Why? Because I believe wholeheartedly in business, there are opportunities for everybody to win. And that's synergy. Right where one plus one doesn't actually equal two, it equals greater than those parts. And I think that's what you can ultimately do by having a brand that stands for something, a brand that has a philanthropic, call it desire, because philanthropy comes with higher degrees of success. To me, while we try to do a lot in our community, while we try to help fight food insecurity, we don't do enough. I want to do more. We do what we can, and I hope that what we can do later on is greater than what we are doing now. I mean, at the end of the day, I hope we're seen as a partner. And I see us as a company as being a partner that is fast, but responsible, and also flexible. If you don't bend, you break. And we're playing in a world with lots of big consumer product companies. And I can name them, right? We know who they are. General Mills, Kellogg's, Nestle's, Conagra you name them, they're these giant behemoths that have been around for decades, if not centuries, and they move slowly, right? They are the, uh, call it the 747 trying to make a steep turn. It's just, Mm -hmm. we're in the Cessna 172 and we're going to zip around. That's the (laughs) one advantage of the 172 over the, over the 747 is that we're able to again, be flexible, be relatively fast. And we've been very fortunate enough to build up enough infrastructure so that we could support partnerships with larger retailers and actually endeavor on bigger projects. And that's kind of what our sweet spot is. So hopefully that answers the question about who we are to our customers, who we are to the consumer.
1: Something that really frustrates me about the food industry in general is that there's this underrated component of consumers feeling shame. And you alluded to it when you talked about all the different competitors that are in the market. Now, I'm not really one for conspiracy theories or anything like that. I try to be as objective and data-based and driven as I could possibly be. But when it comes to the physiological and scientific aspect, I think that there's an overwhelming amount of data that supports the premise foods are chemically engineered to make our palates crave things that we don't even realize we crave. And as a result, we go through these cycles as human beings that we consume foods that we don't really want to. And in turn annihilate our <laughs> second brain in the microbiome, which is our gut. Yep. So I know that having personally sought out the happy foodie brand before this podcast and independent of our friendship we went to like three to four different walmarts before we finally were able to find cauliflower bites by happy foodie
0: those and and those deserve greater recognition and more distribution i will be very clear Um, (laughs) they're only in about half of the walmart stores so to me i don't think they get enough credit
1: but Hopefully you can attest. Yeah, they were really good. I definitely can. I messaged you right out there. I was like, man, these are fire. We used them for the Super Bowl and made the party, honestly. Indulgence without compromise. That's the idea, right? So going back to that initial point, because this honestly makes me lose sleep. Not because of the sugar I'm eating late at night. I try to be better about that. But because... I'm not good at that. (laughs) (laughs) But because of this reality that it's not that we're not in control it's that our willpower is scientifically diluted and i feel like your brand without overextending myself gives us some of that power back in a way so can you talk a little bit about that relative to your competitors
0: yeah look for us there is focus on ingredients, there is a very deliberate process of thinking about how we can make things taste great while not, again, using inferior quality ingredients and trying to be health forward. We'll put it that way. We almost named our brand when I was thinking through brands and what we care about, transparency, which would have been a terrible brand name, but it's something that I care about. because there shouldn't what you see is what you get. Now what we say is there's no surprises just smiles. That's happy foodie, right? Mm-hmm. There's a really big focus on that. The challenge that we have in this industry is cost. We are conditioned as consumers and I'm guilty of it to shop by price sometimes. But the reality is cost is what you pay, value is what you get. And I believe if we work collectively, it's a very broad and vague statement, but if we work collectively to inform consumers of what they are in fact consuming, that there will be a higher value placed on ingredients versus cost. So it is a challenge that we face in this world, especially playing with the big boys, because the big boys find ways to strip cost out. And usually there's a direct correlation between cost and the quality of ingredients. And so, yeah, you can go get a meal that is manufactured by one of the bigger consumer product companies for a very, very low cost, but you're not going to get much nutritional value out of it. It may not have great taste, the taste may be a manufactured flavor. And for us, you're going to get quality ingredients. The, The reality is, is that there's a slight premium to that from a cost standpoint, because we're focusing on the things that are going to enrich your body and make the experience better versus just getting what they call opening price point an OPP item out there. So it's like, if you're, if you're shopping the price tags, this is what you're going to buy. But a lot of it now is layered in with the challenge of marketing and getting your voice out there. The big boys spend so much money on media. So when you turn on the TV or when you're scrolling through even Instagram, their wallets are big and they like to push around the small guys. So part of our job is how can we spend so that we can outmaneuver the big guys? Because we're not gonna outspend them. Mm -hmm. We have to be precise, tactical, think about ways around it, be creative, partner with companies like Barstool Sports to try and reach captive audiences and say, wait a minute, we're not a big CPG a bar store, for example, is not a big CPG. They have a reach. We have an infrastructure. If we bring it together and create consumer products that mean something, now all of a sudden you're impactful. And together, that synergy, you're greater than the sum of those parts, ultimately.
1: That's literally where I'm trying to go with almost anything I do. It's spreading the message, the awareness, and providing the tools to people to be able to feel like they have a bit more control and give themselves a bit more credit when they're making certain decisions, like what they put in their body,
0: because
1: it's all about what you can control. And when something like food is that we all love and indulge, like we've been talking Mm -hmm. about this whole time, and we'll continue to talk about having been on the other side where I feel like I don't have a say in what I am doing and my hands and my mouth are just doing their own thing I'm always trying to take my power back whether it's through literature or training or work there's always some layer of trying to build that foundation like you said that ground floor so I'm sure you face a lot of you know, you're talking about ingredients, I'm sure you faced a lot of supply chain issues just based on everything that was going on in the pandemic. And I want to talk a little bit about that. When it comes to inventory management, or understanding how to go about forecasting, can you speak a little bit to the operations perspective of working in the frozen food industry in particular?
0: Yeah, this is something that I learned through the school of hard knocks and in business school, at least in undergraduate business school. And I imagine as well in graduate uh, business school is there is a focus on the P and L. There's a focus on the balance sheet, but by, and that this is what I mean by learning how to read, not how to understand, but in very seldom cases, do they show how they interact and how a healthy balance sheet and a healthy what a healthy balance sheet is, and what a healthy PL. You have a healthy PL and a terrible balance sheet. Take all your cash, dump it into inventory. Great. Our cost of goods went way down. Why? Because we produced a ton of whatever it is, of spacely sprockets. So our cost per sprocket is really low. We're just sitting on 10 years worth of inventory and we have no cash. Mm-hmm. So the reality is, is that there's this very fine balance between proper inventory management proper cost of goods and that is all overlaid by forecasting right if you could dial in your forecasting you could be sharp but how do you dial in forecasting for products that are new and innovative and incremental that's there is the art of trying to ebb and flow through it and you you layer in the idea that I brought up earlier of being a partner well now you have to try and be partners with the customer, meaning the retailer, so that you can hopefully work together and align on expectations. How many stores are you going to be in? What kind of what kind of promotional strategy are they going to help you to execute? Are you going to be on end caps? That helps you to refine your forecasting, understand what the consumption will be, and make calculated uh, decisions on investment into inventory. And early on, for us, we looked at it a couple different ways. Not having the breadth of my experience is limited to today. I want to try and surround myself now with people whose yesterdays are my tomorrows. Because again, bear in mind, if you look at my resume, it ends at this company. So I haven't gone through a lot of different things, but what we have to try and do is understand that relationship between the PL and the balance sheet always. And anybody that comes into our company, we hope has breadth of experience that is greater than our own. But we have to always remind of that relationship, one, and two, of how he or she, or they, meaning that department, affect the other departments and affect those two financials. Very, very high level there of the things that we have to do. Early on, as a perfect example, and a story of this, is when it came to manufacturing meals. You could source a finished good, right? Provide a spec where they get, meaning the manufacturer or the plant will go and procure the chicken, the rice, the beans, the cheese, all of those things into a finished good. Now, of course, there's margin on anything that anyone touches in business. So what we said is, you know what, we're going to go procure the chicken, the rice, the beans, the everything. And we're just going to, pay a conversion fee for actually putting it together. Our costs of goods were right in line with where we needed it to be. But the reality is, is that now we're buying a year's worth of chicken, a year's worth of, of beans, a year's worth of cheese. And so while our PL and was healthy, you have an effect on your balance sheet. And that's one of those hard lessons of how do you start to walk the line and manage things? Well, volume- Tends to solve a lot of those issues. But as we grew and we matured, we became more aware of the needs on the customer end in order to bring things to life. Talk about partnership, right? We can't create an item for a retailer on 100 stores. 100 stores is a lot, but it's not for innovation, right? We will partner with 100 store chains all the time, but our partnership and collaboration comes in the form of programs merchandising, not creation of products. And then we'll partner with retailers and create products when there's 4,000 stores because the juice is worth the squeeze. But that's part of that lesson of how you actually can manage inventory to bring things to life. And moving forward, you have certain points of distribution, you have certain time on shelf, and then you can take calculated risks on initial production runs because you know look, you may have two months worth, you may have four months worth. Either way, you're going to work through that inventory and then you can refine and sharpen and get into a a really, really comfortable place. And now for, call it legacy products, products that last more than a year, you want to be in the six to eight weeks of supply range. That gives you enough to withstand like surges as well as um, it doesn't give you too much that you're tying up all all of your working capital into inventory but as a growing business working capital is your blood it's literally your blood and it's been a constant constant part of my job in this business is to be mindful of working capital for 11 years since day one just Mm -hmm. the amount has changed Um, and so if you if you go heavy in inventory your job gets a lot harder in terms of trying to find working capital
1: it's pretty wild to see the scale of what you've been able to accomplish over the last 11 years, because what started as motivation based off of a line on a mountain (sighs) in the cold, you're not talking about servicing how many different States?
0: We're in every single state. We're partnered with a, a host of different retailers, but you can get happy foodie products within a 15 minute drive, basically for 95% of the country. So I want to say your local grocery store, but local <laughs> maybe outside of 10 minutes inside of 15.
1: You talked about partnerships. You're wearing the Barstool sports shirt, the Happy yeah. Foodie <laughs> brand on the sleeve. Can Anybody else could get a brand. Just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. Yeah. Uh, when you're seeking out a partnership that may be just outside the bounds of where you think you're at, how do you go about leveraging that inexperience to then parlay it into something greater?
0: What I've learned through this journey, which I'm not done learning, but what I've learned through this journey- We is never are. It, Yeah, right. If you can master something, if you can identify what it is that you stand for, right? because if you try to do everything, you're ultimately nothing. But if you, can un- if you can identify what you're good at and what you stand for in the market, you can add value to anyone or anything. I mean, look, when it comes to a partnership with any other brand, Barstool or anybody else, the reality is, is that we are really good at developing products. At commercializing products, at bringing them to the market in their most responsible and cost-effective way. Barstool, Dave Portnoy has profound reach, also stands for something, right? He specifically stands for good pizza. <laughs> and he's got a, an audience who looks to him for all things pizza, good pizza, not just and bad. He is the guy that says, this is good, this is bad. People listen to it. And so when you take that reach, that understanding of in this particular case, pizza and our infrastructure, you say, you know what? We can be great partners because we can both add value to this equation. And I think that that's ultimately how you try to identify good partnerships. The same thing holds true with um, retailers. We can use Walmart as an example. We can use Wakefern and ShopRite as an example. We can use Costco as an example. But they're looking for things that are incremental. They're looking for things that uh, can generate additional traffic or additional business into a particular set or category. When you start to say, well, I can do that, I can support that, I can make that happen. The big guys who dominate your aisle. Maybe they can do it, but in three years from now, I can do it in 10 months from now. And so this is a trend. This is something that consumers are demanding or looking for, or we can bring it to them faster than anybody else. But again, a responsible way, we can also add value now to that retailer because we're offering something that is not currently available in their set, providing accessibility to it. So that's how, to me, you identify partnerships. Where can it be synergistic? You know, and then conversely, you're sometimes approached with opportunities where it's like, well, yes, I do this and you do that. And the sum of those things together is exactly what we expect. So that's that to me is just putting two things close to each other, not connecting puzzle pieces so that now there's a picture that you see. So whether it's on the branding side, or on the retailer side, or on the supplier side, that's the way that we view each and every opportunity. Is this a partnership or is this a transaction? I'm very interested in partnerships. I'm not so interested in transactions.
1: Was there something in particular about this opportunity that you found was, we can't miss this. We got a strike now and... Was it you who saw it or was it someone in your business that saw it? And how did you go about the execution of that strategy?
0: Well, I think that we all play roles within our business. So if everybody plays their role, it shapes opportunities and ultimately brings them to fruition. The nutshell version of it is that we're talking about the growth in a very exponential and rapid way of social media. A lot of companies weren't or didn't know how to harness social media, especially in food and consumer products. And now we're going back like just prior to the pandemic. And prior to the pandemic, our team, because I'll just talk about the company as a whole, saw an opportunity to say, wait a minute, consumer product with this, Emerging platform or series of platforms for spreading a message and ultimately enticing consumers to act in whatever way that is. Now, can I go out and create content on my own and get millions of followers? Probably not. Maybe I'm not, I guess I'm not that entertaining, but ultimately, no. So, who can we partner with to bring products together and what's authentic? Well, I was a, I was and still a fan of Dave's content and watching the pizza reviews. Growing up in northern New Jersey, there's a lot of good pizza places around, and might as well look to the pizza king, if you will, to see what's best where I should go. And from there, it turned into a, we have the capabilities, infrastructure to support frozen foods, and ultimately, how do we bring this guy access to these great places to the masses to oklahoma to tennessee to places outside of a stone's throw away because the reality is is that if you want to go to john's of Bleecker street you got to fly to new york or you can go on Goldbelly maybe and buy two pizzas for 150 dollars not accessible <laughs> so it was an interesting time pre-pandemic as you start to see all of these things then you start to look at category trends and data frozen foods specifically frozen pizza starting to grow as people become more aware that wait a minute there's a stigma in frozen you actually don't need to put preservatives in frozen food to preserve them because that's what the freezer does so there can be a better quality of ingredient in the food that we eat so you take all of these things you say opportunities here how do we reach somebody like dave portnoy how do we work with a bar stool of the world who's growing and that's where you have to try and get creative and scrappy to stand out but then you have some serendipity because of timing and because a guy like dave never really reviewed or looked into frozen pizza but a global pandemic hit and forced everybody into the freezer because everybody was staying home including Dave. And so instead of going to pizzerias and making reviews, he was actually reviewing frozen pizzas. And so here's where the serendipity plays in is we we approach them just prior to the pandemic on the opportunity for frozen food, specifically frozen pizza. And a handful of weeks later, he's forced to take a deep dive into that category because of the world outside our walls. And when you take that, as well as our approach towards it, they come together at a very serendipitous point in time. And to me, my dad's a big mentor to me, and he gives me these little (laughs) one-liners. One of the things he said, which was this was before Barstool, but with rapid change, because think about it, when this pandemic hit and everybody had to go home and quarantine and stay inside, the world changed in one week, equivalent to what I would say is five years. Consumer trends, where we're looking, how we're shopping, overnight on a dime. Big boys can't change, we can change. And so we were able to fortify this partnership in a short period of time and take advantage of increased traffic in a category as well as a combination where we're home, everybody's home. So what do you do? Yeah, you could turn on the TV and watch News, which was pretty morbid and depressing, or you could go on your phones and get in, get involved in social media, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. And now we try to take this this like emerging new trend of reaching people through social media and combine it with consumer products, barstool, one by Dave perfect partnership we're fast we're flexible we're we care about partnership let's go full steam ahead
1: that's such a cool story man this entire time the way you've been talking there's an immense passion behind it and i'm sure you get that all the time but i got to know you at an early time in my life where i was extremely malleable and it was easy for me to be receptive To information and and good influence, and to see how it's, chan how you have channeled it and put it into synergy, opportunity, and leadership. There's also another aspect that I think you deserve some credit for, and that's the philanthropic side. You talked about food insecurity, something that I can relate to, and that I'll share very quickly before we get into the Foodie Fund and everything. One in six Americans.
0: One in six Americans is food insecure.
1: And that is actually a statistic that inspired me two years ago when I did a challenge. I should say a virtual fundraiser. I did a thousand push-ups in an hour. and don't I don't even know it. how that's possible. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. And uh, it was a Instagram live fundraiser. 18 push-ups on a minute every minute until I reached a thousand. and. Initially, the goal was to raise enough money to feed 10,000 people. Fortunately, we raised enough money to feed over 20,000 people as a result of the challenge. And it's something that inspired, obviously, the most recent fundraiser that I did. And we could talk about that later. But Food insecurity is something that speaks deeply to my soul because everyone can rally around as a human being. And the fact that your company embraces it is one of the draws for me as a consumer and as a person that aligns with my own moral compass. And I wanted to know what are some of the things that Happy Foodie is doing now in order to help alleviate food insecurity? Yeah.
0: Never enough, right? Never enough, certainly not enough now. We've partnered with a professional athlete. Her name is Danielle Kang. She's uh, one of the leading players on the LPGA Tour, and she shares a very common care and passion, as we do, of fighting food insecurity. And so my hat is off to her. Credit to her is that she's used her voice in our partnership to try and spread the word about food insecurity. And we've worked specifically in Las Vegas and San Francisco and LA with her on donating food to food banks, going into in San Francisco, the inner city and giving out meals to folks that they could take home or heat up right there. In New York City, we created some nutritiously balanced meals for low-income housing. Specifically during the pandemic, there was not only folks who couldn't afford food, but there were also people who couldn't actually go outside because they're immune compromised. And so they became food insecure. It went from one in six to one in four because of that. And so we have done things to try and offset food insecurity by donating, by creating specific meals for people that fit certain diets and also can't go outside. And we continue to do that. Looking for options. I'd like to do it every week. Unfortunately, again, that comes with achievement of success on the on the for-profit side, being able to be more philanthropic. So that'll be something that we continue to commit to. But as we grow as a for-profit business, we will continue to grow as a philanthropic, hopefully, organization as well.
1: As I said recently in the 50-mile run that I just did, where we raised over $15,000 towards curing Alzheimer's, when you give, it makes more room for more yeah. money to come into your own pocket.
0: When we started our business and we started this journey, like I'll be honest with you, I like the taste of the waffles and I wanted to make some money. <laughs> it was pretty basic. But as you, as you walk that path, as you begin your journey, as you hit walls and you gain experience, you start to understand what it is that you really care about who it is that you really are, what your core values are. And that becomes your guiding kind of light as you build a team, right? That's your culture. As you create products, that's your core value. That's your mission. That's your, what you stand for, what your brand purpose is. Right? But again, you start really wide. And as you walk down the road, it gets more and more narrow. And then you start to realize this is who we are. And then the last portion of it is that you have to embrace who you are. Don't be ashamed of who you are. Promote who you are. And I think that for me, that that applies to me as an individual as well. It's like if you think about it, as you grow up, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, there there's degrees just natural as you grow up as a kid of awkwardness right? Who's popular? Who's not? You try to do this, you wear that shirt because he wears that or she wears that. Cool. But ultimately the coolest thing, which you learn as you get older is to be yourself. That's what cool is.
1: I think you had that at an earlier stage than most man. And maybe it's because you were already up to some really unique things as such a early stage in your career. I'll say, man, I can't speak to it enough because you put in the work and you do it in more than one area. We talked about philanthropy. We talked about building a business. In the beginning of this show, we talked about training and flying. And these are the last few points I want to address before we wrap up here. Important points. Of course. me And I think that's why we're finishing with it. Yeah, of course I think it's the most captivating aspect in my opinion, because I feel like it contributes towards everything else, the cherries on top, if you will. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: time management is obviously an essential component, and we both care a lot about what we put in our bodies, but it's also how we train our bodies and then turn our minds. What type of training are you into these days, and how do you find the time to manage both your fitness And your business?
0: Well, I think that one feeds the other. Your training physically provides you with the mental, call it acuity or clarity to be able to jump in to the other thing. And to me, I'm, I'm routine oriented. I'll be perfectly honest, which sometimes there's a degree of rigidity there that is not my favorite attribute of myself but those types of things give me the ability I believe to excel and to think clearly on the business frontier. I also think that when you go to a gym or when you go to anything, right? Soccer, but like if you're training physically, pushing yourself a little farther is a physical is a physical Uh, representation of some of the things we do in business, right? Like it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because it's creating a higher degree of strength in whatever it is physically, mentally. So you're now conditioned to do a little more than the people next to you. A little crazy, but at the same time, to me, it's preparing for real life. That's going to be really hard. And if you go ahead and can push yourself to that point, Well, hopefully when you get into the actual game, you're prepared for everything and you're ready to withstand what's coming, which you don't know exactly.
1: I can't tell you how much it warms my soul to know that people, (laughs) especially high achievers like yourself, are on that same wavelength. So you're a pilot. Yes. How did you get into it and how is it? an essential part of your life right now? Oof,
0: that's, it is the most essential part of my life. I don't remember this, but as I've been told by my parents, my first word was bird. So there's always been something about looking up for me and flying. That's fascinated me since before I had the ability to think about it. My, enthusiasm and passion for aviation was literally as long as I can actually remember. I would get model airplanes and each room in my house would be a different airport. And I have models that are underneath the couch and that was a terminal. And then the next room was a different airport somewhere else. And then I graduated to work flight simulators, learning airplanes a little bit on my 18th birthday. My dad just told me to get in the car. I was like, well, what does that mean? Like he's just get in the car. So I got in the car and he dropped me off at century air. And he's like, you're going to learn to fly. I was like, no, no, it's okay. I love planes. He said, no, you're meant for it. So for, for me, it was like, I'm very grateful because it was pushing that limit of comfort for a place that at least my parents knew that I was supposed to go, but, ultimately pushed me to a, to a place where I might not have done it on my own if I didn't get that, that little push. And then look, you can probably attest to this. Then it's like a drug, right? It's expensive and addicting. You always want to go higher and you always want to go further. But what it turned into was a passion for the actual like, art of it, the professionalism of it. I was 18 flying. And when you go up in the air and you're flying around the New York Bravo airspace, which is a very busy airspace, whether you're 18 or you're 58, you're being treated as another plane in the sky and there's a high degree of professionalism. And I kind of love that. I also love the idea of saying I can go from here to somewhere far away in a very short period of time. So you want to talk about time management. I started to see the efficiencies, at least from a time standpoint, not necessarily from a dollar standpoint of being able to get places quickly and maximize your day. But most importantly, what I, what I really loved about flying is that it was an outlet. There is no ability at that, you know, now there's Wi-Fi in certain planes and stuff like that, but your phone goes away and you have to focus on what's happening in front of you and where you're going. And everything comes back to like this metaphor of businesses. Cause I tend to apply the things I love in my life to business. And that's what I was talking about, about how they kind of intertwine. But I always describe business as flying. You have a scan of where you are right now. And then you have to peek up to where you're going later. And it's the art of the down, up, down, up, up, down to say we're good right now. Everything's safe. And where are we going? Well, there's a storm over there and there's clear skies over there. So we're going to take a slight turn to the right. And while that turn to the right may not be felt, if you were looking inside the cockpit right now, if you look out, it's like, oh, we're going to a better place or to a higher altitude or whatever. Um, So that was something that I've always really, really enjoyed. Again, the professionalism and similar to working out the mental outlet that it does provide, even though you can't be – mentally turned off when you're flying.
1: I talked about the influence that you had on me at an early stage a couple of times throughout this podcast. If you had to offer some words of wisdom to aspiring entrepreneurs as they look towards building their careers.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. The, The easy thing to say, which is ironic, what I'm going to say, is that if it were easy, everyone would do it. But what's more important, so understand that going in, there's your prerequisite, ain't going to be easy. But when you're in it, There's ups and downs by the hour, by the minute, sometimes by the day, other times by the week, you're going to have highs. You're going to have lows. And the key is to withstand the lows because it's really easy to give up. That's the easiest thing in the world to do. I'm done. Game over. Ring the bell. You're out. Don't do it. Don't do it. Fight through it. Keep going. If you actually believe in it, then you have to withstand those, those lows. There are so many people that just tap out and there were moments where I thought about it. Right. But you just, you have to keep fighting. Don't ever give up. I give every single person that comes into our company a picture of a frog in a bird's mouth. And the frog is grabbing the throat of the bird. And it says, don't ever give up because to me, I will be the frog far more times than will be the bird and I will never, ever give up. And so even when you think the odds are against you, you just got to keep going. That, uh, there's a lot of advice, but that's the one that I think is the most important.
1: As we conclude and we wrap up this phenomenal episode that truly I learned a lot. I know the audience will have taken a lot out of it. What's next for you, man?
0: Higher altitudes, flight levels, right? Um, <laughs> what's next for for call it us, we, our company, is to hopefully be able to build out on that strategy that we talked about. Is how can we take consumer products that mean something that are partnered with captive audiences, so we can reach someone and make something special and provide accessibility to that. That's on that end for me. It's how do I continue to build something that becomes bigger than me and ultimately fuel my passion for the things that I love to do in life, like flying, right? The dream is that you could be up there in the flight levels for longer than you could be on the ground. If you could do that, I think we're making progress.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sam Rockwell, CEO of Happy Foodie. Thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate your time, your effort. I'm excited for everything headed your way. Please let everyone know where they can find you.
0: Well, Walmart's the safe bet right now, as well as ShopRite if you're in the Northeast and Fresh Direct, but happyfoodie.com. And John, thanks, man. Great, great show. Gracious host, thanks.
1: My, My pleasure, man. Honestly, this was a blast. I can't wait for everyone to hear it continue to inspire continue to motivate man doesn't look like the altitudes are high enough for you man so uh, they're gonna have to keep higher bigger faster, higher farther. faster <laughs> until Dude, the next time you. everyone see you thank around, man. you thank you for tuning in to another episode of inside the inspired you can follow happy foodie on instagram at happy foodie Identifying opportunity is something I talk a lot about on this show, whether it's through relationships or synergy or learning what not to do. Success is relative. However, you define your success. Of course is up to you. My hope is that these stories, lessons, questions, and values create a shared space where we can all grow and get better together. If there's a topic that you want me to cover, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at inside the inspired well, That's all for this episode, so until the next one, stay safe, stay strong, stay mindful.